the second pick, the Philadelphia Eagles select Donovan McNabb, quarterback, Syracuse University. Don't move. Again and welcome to another edition of the Boo Birds podcast. My name is Joe Greenwich. Joining me again, as always, my co-host John Sager. John, how are you? Great. A little bit more awake than I was for the, our last episode. <laughs> you do look a little uh, more refreshed, a little more sprightly than you did a week ago. It helps to have uh, multiple hours of sleep. <laughs> uh, we're recording here at the start of Thanksgiving week. A Thanksgiving week unlike any that I can remember. Surely that you can remember either, obviously, with all of the restrictions in place and all of the guidelines telling us to not travel and not get together with family. What kind of plans do you have for Thanksgiving? Is it just going to be the two of you? Are you going to visit your parents? What's on the docket for the Sagers this week? Well, uh, we will just it'll just be the two of us. We will be Zooming, uh, at least with my uh, sister's family in Ireland and uh, probably, uh, with my wife's family as well. Um, and, and I will say on a note, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Really? Just because of the, right. The, it's, it's very no frills holiday. It's, it's literally about food and family and there's no, there's no pretense to it. It's sitting around waiting for dinner, stuffing yourself with, uh, lots of carbs <laughs> and uh just la- having not having the family around i should say is um it 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 definitely feels lacking uh but you know we will um load up on i believe it's the stuffed chicken we have ready to go so i'm looking forward to that uh it's funny that you mentioned that because thanksgiving was always my favorite holiday growing up too because you would go to school for three days. You have a short week and then you'd have two days off basically to eat turkey and watch football. A pretty solid holiday when you're, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, as I've gotten older, I've enjoyed it in large part because of the short work week. But a tradition I started with some friends is that we would spend our Thanksgiving morning playing golf, kind of last round of the season. Sometimes it's pretty cold. We've played on greens that are slick as an ice skating rink. And there are some years where it's kind of unseasonably warm and uh, you get a little toasty out there with pants and a jacket on. But almost certainly not doing that this year. There are a couple options for some socially distant golf, but the weather doesn't seem like it's going to cooperate. So of all of the Thanksgiving traditions that will be going by the wayside, the Thanksgiving golf classic is one of them. I'll just be with immediate family. Um, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself Thanksgiving morning. I might just sleep till one o'clock so that I don't have to deal with it. But um, definitely going to be a strange kind of thing. Like you said, the family won't be around. Obviously, there's Zoom and FaceTime and all of that stuff out there. But it will certainly be different um, on, on the plus side. Well, I guess it's not really necessarily the plus side. One of the best parts about Thanksgiving is that Friday is Thanksgiving 2, where you just eat the leftover turkey and stuffing. And in theory, with only very few people, you're probably going to have less food, which means less leftovers 
And I really didn't think this one through. Now it's now it's really depressing that instead of getting two Thanksgivings, we're only getting one. I will say the last couple of years we've had uh, a Thanksgiving with uh, my family, usually earlier in the week. And then um, depending on the wor- everyone's work schedule, because my sister-in-law is a, a nurse, um, we'll load up later on uh, with uh, with my in-laws. My in-laws, I kid you not, make three turkeys every year for about eight people. They're very hardcore <laughs> about it. So uh, usually I am swimming in leftover turkey. Uh, I have a hunch that something will be dropped off uh, this year. I was going to say a, a package may end up on the doorstep uh, Friday afternoon. We could only hope. Well, we've got a packed show this week. Uh, we're going to talk about the Sixers who... I mean, this could be two shows in a row where we're saying good things about the Sixers. Uh, We're going to give the most fleeting of mentions to the Eagles. Uh, I think I've already spent way too much time on them just by mentioning that. And uh, we're going to answer some listener mail as well. Oh, really? Yes. And, of course, we're going to talk about the Union. They start their MLS Cup title quest at home against New England this week. And in light of that, I have a surprise for you, John. We have a guest. We do? We do. We're going to talk to Delaware County Daily Times assistant sports editor, Matthew DeGeorge. He's going to talk to us about the union's memorable 2020 season and what comes next for the club, both this year and going forward. Does he know he's being interviewed? Like he's joining us willingly? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, he is, John. Wow. Well, I think he is. Uh, Either way, we're going to need to be on our best behavior. Uh, We have a lot to get to this week, so... Why don't you give us a quick look at the news? The Philadelphia Eagles basketball team did not rock and or roll in Cleveland. <laughs> the Birds lost their second straight game and fell to 3-6-1. The Sixers nearly scored a perfect week. New GM Daryl Morey nabbed Kentucky guard Tyrese Maxey late in the first round and acquired much-needed bench depth. Seth Curry... Terrence Ferguson, Danny Green, and uh, Dwight Howard. Maury also dealt Al Horford and Josh Richardson, two starters from last year in a busy first week of the NBA season. And the other Philadelphia football team will kick off their playoff slate against the New England Revolution on Tuesday night. The postseason matchup is their sixth contest this year. And that's the news. Joe, what are you drinking? I'm actually drinking some cold, refreshing Sprite. Uh, HO and Mexico, they use sugar as opposed to artificial sweeteners. Uh, comes in a glass bottle. Sometimes you get it out of a machine. There's a beverage distribution hub nearby that sells Coke and Sprite in that form. I think it tastes much better than the regular. Some people say it tastes flat to each their own. Hey, John, what are you drinking? Well, Joe, I brought the coffee whiskey back out and mixed it with Dr. Pepper. That was What Are You Drinking? Brought to you this week by Ron Burgundy, because I immediately regret that decision. (laughs) Not very good. Eh, I will say cough syrup at best. The poor coffee whiskey being dragged through the mud here on the podcast. Not being dragged through the mud, however, Daryl Morey, the president of basketball operations, for the 76ers, already putting his stamp on the franchise. You talked about it in the news. The biggest thing was within days of joining the club, he's already gotten the Sixers out from under the Al Horford contract. 
when I first heard about it and I saw that he had given away a first round draft pick, I was mildly incensed. Then I saw it was a 2025 draft pick. And I, I don't even think those are real at this point. So kudos to Daryl Morey on that one. Right. That seemed like uh, when I was looking at a recap of the draft, there was uh, a draft pick that was from Philadelphia by way of Boston, by way of Charlotte, by way of Oklahoma City, for example. And it looks like a 2025 draft pick is exactly going to be that, whereas the kind of pick that just gets shopped around and who knows what that's going to matter. But it's the fact that he just got rid of Al Horford, more specifically Al Horford's contract, is just huge. Uh, I mean, that was sort of the untradeable thing. I, I think if we thought that it was leaving the Sixers if you know if the the contract is its own entity at this point where the it, it was leaving the Sixers I think uh we envisioned it would be part of a bigger trade where it would be the uh the throw in maybe to to balance out uh, a bigger star coming and going you know maybe a three or four team deal something something that required a lot of creativity and it turns out not that much creativity thank you Oklahoma City you know Daryl Morey has on his board in his office somewhere, 2025 draft pick Oklahoma City circled to to go and reacquire that at some point. Um, I have no doubt he'll either get that pick back or some similar pick. I've I've read in the last day or so that that trade actually isn't finished and may actually become a bigger deal like you're talking about. There were apparently discussions of as many as seven teams being involved in the situation, but the crux of it is Al Horford no longer a 76er. His sister decided to try to burn Philadelphia on the way out. Who cares? It was very much a good riddance <laughs> thing. I didn't know how I know how we felt about Al Horford. I didn't know how he felt about us. And now we know. Well, there's a question. Did did we feel bad about Al Horford, or was it just a, a signing that didn't make much sense and he didn't live up to what we needed and everyone was just ugh about it? You know? Well, I mean, I think an important thing to remember is that a good chunk of the season was played out uh, in a bubble with no fans. So I didn't think that would alleviate some things. But I think for the most part, um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to tell, maybe, especially if you're not familiar with the town. I, I was under the impression that people were more upset with Elton Brand for giving him the contract than Al Horford. So absolutely. I think it's one of those things if you're in his family and you're, you know, you're looking at people uh, online say negative things, you're, you're probably not thinking of it through that filter. But, you know, regardless, we don't have to worry about that anymore. I think the more surprising thing for me was Josh Richardson leaving. Um, he was someone who was a solid contributor. I don't, it wasn't, I would say more of a team leader locker room person uh, than a super plus player on the floor, but he was certainly good on the floor. And there were times where it seemed like he was the starter, uh, who actually showed up for some games, specifically road games. So that was a surprise to see him go. Well, what they got in return though, if you're going to trade a guy like that away, they did get one of the best shooters in the league, the best shooter in his family. Historically speaking, we're talking about Seth Curry second in NBA history. I think I saw in career three-point percentage for guys with over a 1,000 attempts. His brother, the maybe more well-known and well-thought-of Stephen Curry, fourth all-time. 
not bad. I think the Curry family is doing something right. However, they're teaching shooting. However, Dell taught shooting clearly worked. Well, Philadelphia has that history of getting the wrong sibling. <laughs> so, so at first this sounds like that, but then it's like, oh no, maybe they got the right one. Although I will say I was glad that we got uh, Randy Wolf instead of his brother. I don't know how much an umpire. I don't know what that would do for you. So you know, <laughs> well, I we'll, mean, we'll take I think that. having an umpire on your team would actually be pretty good. That's true. That's true. But I, I think overall, I, I like what, um, what, what the Sixers have done. I like obviously bringing in Danny Green. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say we didn't mention him. He's won the last two NBA titles, has he not? I believe so. Yeah, he's going to be traded from L.A. to Oklahoma City and then from Oklahoma City to the Sixers. And, and I mean, he's a good shooter, he's a good defender, and he's got championship experience. Right, and I think that's what the the Sixers need. And I think bringing in both Green and Curry fills a void, the, I'd say the J.J. Redick void, except they're not going to be the liability on defense that Redick was and I think you saw that play out last year. If if they could get a do-over, I, I think I would rather have had Redick stay than get the do-over on the Horford contract because you could see without having that outside presence for Ben Simmons to kick out to, uh, how much easier it was for teams to just sort of pack the box when he's driving in the lane because they're not worried about an automatic three-point shooter from outside, especially one who could get a shot off at difficult angles as often as he did. And then I also liked uh, Terrence Ferguson or the idea of Terrence Ferguson. I can't say that I've seen a lot of him play, but apparently he's supposed to be a great defender. And I love having the idea of Ferguson and Thibault coming off the bench. So, so far they have yet to make a deal for that star player, the kind of, especially after the, the hardened rumors that we were hoping for. But to survive an NBA season, you're going to need a bench, specifically the playoffs. And if they can have guys that can shoot and play defense, as basic as that seems, that's something they did not have. It was very much either or. Um, and to be able to do it at a high level, I'll take it. And I, I think the Sixers are definitely better than they were, although I can't say I feel that about Dwight Howard. I, I think that's the one the one minus is I don't think they've gotten the backup center uh, four person that you can kind of slide in there, um, especially if Embiid's down for a, a long stretch of time. Well, just earlier today, we're recording on Sunday night. It came out that the Sixers are going to trade Zaire Smith to Detroit for Tony Bradley. He's a center, and I will admit I've never heard of him. Um, so there's another big body. And the thing with Dwight Howard is Maury has familiarity with him from Houston. Dwight got a ring this year with the Lakers. I, I, I don't know how much he's got left in the tank. I don't know how much of a veteran leadership presence he is. Kind of a wild card. I, I don't know what's going on there, but I kind of feel like we have to give Daryl Morey the benefit of the doubt in regards to the moves he's made simply since he's joined the Sixers, plus his career as an executive. It's also, again, his first month on the job. You kind of have to let him cook a little bit. So the role that Dwight Howard plays obviously remains to be seen. Also, we kind of know what we need to see out of him. I think they still need a reliable backup ball handler. Shake Milton's probably not that guy. 
But all in all, they have kind of remade the look of the roster without doing anything super drastic to the core of the team. We had talked about, you know, if they were going to trade for James Harden, that that would mean Ben Simmons was leaving and and probably Matisse Thibel. And right now, as we record, those guys are both still Sixers. So it may not be the the earth shattering blockbuster deal that some were hoping for or or may have expected, but that's not how general managers reach the level of acclaim that guys like Daryl Morey have. It's not because they make big trades. It's deals like these signings and, and trades for guys that fit your team and freeing up salary cap space. These are the things that elite front office executives do. And now it's just a matter of seeing how it all unfolds in a season that begins in a month. Well, one thing to to look out for is the role of the the backup might actually come from one of the players they just drafted. Three of them are guards. So there's there's a chance one of them could emerge. I, I don't like to put a whole lot on NBA rookies. That tends to, to be a mistake. You just ultimately for a rookie, you're just hoping that they show some signs that they can stick in the league. Um, for example, with Thibault last year, you saw even though his offense was, you know, certainly not there. Uh, consistently defensively he was a presence so you're just hoping some of these guys can can show some of that and maybe it can be through a a backup role maybe um they are chips especially getting a a guard from france i don't know if he's coming over right away i haven't seen anything uh, about that but you know maybe he's the guy in the future so this might be a year where they're not necessarily cashing in all the chips especially with trading with a horford contract but i would say all in all uh a b plus grade for maury uh maybe you know still it, it's tough with the harden idea out there to where it's like anything short of that feels a little less but i'd say all in all you know there isn't a single move that really makes me concerned whereas last year um two hefty contracts uh where i thought i get it but the the money's an awful lot but we haven't we haven't had that yet and i'd say it it feels good to have someone who has a a good handle on the rudder um as they're taking this this franchise through a critical offseason i think uh a B plus is fair. I mean, you're starting at a high level when you get rid of that contract. So obviously you don't want to just heap the praise on because everything remains to be seen on how it turns out. But I think a B plus is more than fair. Not earning a B plus would be anyone associated with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, I know we we tend to break things down a little bit here. The game against the Browns, the Eagles fell 22 to 17 in a game that wasn't even that close. It was it was it was just a terrible performance all around from the coach to the gm to the players this franchise is in absolute shambles um i don't even think there's really anything to talk about john no not not too much i will say uh the the safety i i rarely get upset when i watch a game i'm very usually very even keeled i was livid when that happened so when when we get to john john is livid when we get to that level <laughs> uh, i think that's a, that's a certainly a new low for the eagles i think jeffrey lurie has some difficult questions to ask of himself and some difficult decisions to make 
who's the next hot personnel executive candidate? You know, thank Howie Rosen for his services. Turn the reins over to someone else. I don't know, maybe see if Jim Harbaugh wants a lifeline out of Michigan. See what it would cost to get Dabo Swinney out of Clemson. They, they kind of need to just break the whole thing down. And in the NFL, it doesn't take that long to bounce back. This is not a baseball type of or, or a Sixers process type of, of rebuild. They need to just blow it up, take their lumps next year. And, and I say that, and of course, they're still in first place. They're going to be in first place when you wake up on Thanksgiving morning at three, six and one. But we, we've already spent too much time talking about them. Next Monday night, home for Seattle. That could be a debacle or they could go and win the game. Who even knows anymore? But our quick picks, I had a Browns win. You had an Eagles win. Uh, we both had the same offensive standout in Miles Sanders. He was good right up until he dropped the ball. Literally. Uh, you picked Alex Singleton. I picked Denzel Ward from Cleveland. They both had pretty good games. I'm going to say I won because I got the result correct and the score almost dead on. But if you really, really want to argue it, here's your chance. Uh, I will concede defeat. I, <laughs> I If you read uh, read the analysis uh, hidden in my along with my pick, I picked it more as a way of hoping to gain a little ground on you. <laughs> I, it was a very shaky pick, although it appeared that early on that I might have had a chance. If, right. Uh, I mean, and they ran the ball like you said they needed to. Right. And then they just abandoned it. Right. As they always do. Although I will say, if uh, you mentioned the Eagles possibly winning against Seattle next week, if you are welcome to pick that, I won't argue with you. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. We're going to have our picks. We usually have them up on Friday, but with the Thanksgiving holiday, maybe Friday, Saturday, we'll see. But there is one football related thing that we did want to talk about last week. The story out of New York Giants headquarters was that head coach. Joe Judge and offensive line coach Mark Colombo got into a fist fight. And the story is that Colombo came out on top and Judge fired him. Now, this is after a win, okay? The Giants had beaten the Eagles a few days earlier. Now, I don't know if there's been more to it since the announcement that he was fired. I really, really hope this is true. Like, I can't remember a crazy story that I've wanted to be true more than this one. Have, can you? No, it was one of those, you see it and you think, well, that didn't happen. And then you see it, a couple other people say it. So who knows? Well, we saw the tweet from Jason McIntyre, who tweeted about the fight. And we, we had commentary on it that was similar to what I just said. And we got a reply from our friend at Jeremy Fallis 3 on Twitter. He says, for the next episode, what current or past Philadelphia coaches do you wish got in a fight and who would win? And so, John, we're going to play a quick round of Philly Coach Fight Club. Philly Coach Fight Club. John, what two Philadelphia coaches would you want to see fight each other? My answer, the first one I want to see in the ring Although I don't know why I assume we're, we're doing this in a ring and not, you know, in some alley somewhere. But the first one I want to see is former Eagles head coach, Rich Kotite. And I was thinking about who I would want to see him fight. And 
The answer is someone who's going to beat the snot out of Rich Kotite, who I still haven't forgiven for that seven and two turned seven and nine season in 1994. And I settled on Larry Boa. I think Larry Boa, former Phillies manager, third base coach, bench coach, who constantly is angry about something, or at least looks angry about something, would absolutely go to town on Rich Kotite. I think Boa wins that one. If it's if it's a formal fight, he wins it in a first-round knockout. If it's not a formal fight, he wins it when the cops show up. I think that's a no-brainer. That's what I want to see, strictly because I still want Rich Kotite to pay. Well, Joe, I think that's in the past. You got to let it go, man. Right, but here's the thing. I was like 10 years old back then, right? So that was like the earliest Eagles team that I really remember. And, and when you're when you're that young, each loss counts triple. So Right, but then factor in like what's your earliest Eagles memory? I think it's Charlie Garner going off against the 49ers and the Eagles winning 40 to 8 and finishing the year 7 and 9. Like and, that's and what I remember. You're still watching. You're still watching. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, who do you want to see? Go toe-to-toe. Well, um, you know I'm one to ramble, so obviously I couldn't just do one pairing, and I broke it down (laughs) by sports. John, I said to you, hey, pick two Philly coaches you want to see. And you're like, okay. And now now you're going to give me a mini tournament here? Well, here's the thing. We we know me by now. I I like to go a little in depth. (laughs) And you you have a fight. I have a card. Oh my and, goodness. And I'm choosing under an I-95 overpass <laughs> for my location. So the first one is the part will, of the parking lot of uh of the Wells Fargo Center that just about gets there. Close enough. <laughs> I, th- I think I think it's it's in the general direction. It's so got the, it's got the fence, it looks like a cage, it all works. All right, go ahead. Who's your uh, earliest undercard fight? I, this was mostly of uh, a style of fisticuffs that I would like to see. Larry Boa and Gabe Kapler. <laughs> so I'm envisioning this Larry Boa coming out as a, you know, very feisty, you know, he's just envisioning uh, botched uh, strike calls. Uh, and then Gabe Kapler, I'm thinking he's coming out in a gi and is going to do some kind of crane kick. Uh, so <laughs> so I, I would like to see the the two styles clash. Right. But here's the thing, though. Is, is it going to be a, a grappling setup? Because with all the coconut oil, Boa's not going to be able to grab a hold of Kapler for a second. I mean, I, I don't know. And that's why I want to see it. <laughs> and right, who else you got? The second one, because, well, this is uh, we have a hockey team here and they are the Broad Street Bullies. So you have to go with a little hockey. Uh, you know, I know coaches tend to be a little bit more subdued as soon as they uh, you know, wear the suit and they're guiding their team. And I have to think two Flyers coaches, two former players, I think they could they could mix it up. And the first one, Bill Barber. Okay. The second one, Craig Berube. Oh. And I'm thinking this might be something that's a, a judge's decision at the end of the fight. Huh. It just, I, 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 I you know, ho- hockey players know how to go. Craig Berube, well known for his uh, physicality on the ice, we'll say, and Bill Barber, literally a Broad Street bully. Interesting. You know, I was thinking of, should I have a hockey coach do the beating on Rich Kotite? <laughs> um, but just it was just Boa's, I mean, everything you cited, just his, his fiery 
just the way he is seemed like the, the, the right candidate. But yeah, I didn't even think of Craig Berube. Huh, that's a good one. Well, I, I think we can agree uh, your fight is more of a just exorcising uh, demons and, and feelings. My first one is a bit of a, a stunt with Boa versus Kapler. And my I think my final one is the headliner, although I think there are a lot of other people that want to see the Kotite thing as well. Well, what I think happens is you have Boa and Kapler fight, and then on his way out after the fight, Boa stops by wherever Rich Kotite's hanging out. Although, do we have to consider that the Boa Kapler one has to go last because all the coconut oil will be everywhere? Um, now, see, I think I think that's the point where we've taken this too far. When we're considering the logistics of staging this card, that's where Philly Coach Fight Club has gone too far. Hey, man, 2020 has been a long year. <laughs> but Jeremy, thanks for the question. Uh, we hope we answered it. I believe we both gave it the proper amount of thought certainly more than we did to the Eagles game certainly a much more pressing issue than anything involving the Eagles today which two Philly coaches do you want to see fight if you're listening leave a comment on the website or or reply to our tweet let us know what you want to see happen and maybe we'll put these fights up on Twitter and let people vote on who's going to win but thank you for the listener mail Jeremy and Anyone else who has some hard-hitting life questions such as this, feel free to ask the Boo Birds. We will give you an answer. Speaking of answers, John, I know we have a lot of questions about the Union, their playoff game with New England and MLS Cup going forward. Matthew DeGeorge from the Delaware County Daily Times is going to answer our questions after the break. So stick around and we'll be right back here on the Boo Birds podcast. Back here on the Boo Birds podcast, and as promised, we have company. Joining us this week is Matthew DeGeorge, the assistant sports editor for the Delaware County Daily Times, also their union insider, and he's with us to talk about the club's playoff appearance that gets underway this week. Matt, thanks for being here. How have things been for you? Happy to be here, guys. I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty well. So it's certainly been a strange year for sports on both the national and local levels. Uh, what has it been like for you personally to cover games in the era of coronavirus? It's uh, it's definitely been weird, uh, which I guess is the way that it's supposed to be uh, to make sure that everything's going correctly. And, uh, you know, all the all the uh, protocols and procedures that we have to cover and things like that. Um, I'm pretty fortunate in that the two sports that I've spent the most time covering are the Union and the Phillies this summer. And both of those are press boxes that are open air. So you're in a situation where you're more or less outside. It doesn't feel like you are inside. I would, I would really, uh, I, I'd hate to be covering the Eagles right now because that press box is hermetically sealed. And uh, while it is beautiful, it's not, uh, it's not exactly an outdoor setting. Um, so, you know, so far so good. A lot of temperature checks, a lot of, uh, a lot of hand sanitizing, but uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, the way so many people's lives have been changed by what's going on right now, uh, it's really, really minor things to allow us to 
do the jobs that we do and and also to watch the sports that that we really love watching so uh so far so good knock on wood that it continues that is just one of the reasons why you're lucky not to be covering the eagles right now <laughs> the team is, <laughs> in and of itself being the other one <laughs> uh, john and i have talked about the union over the course of the season and and we kind of come from two different backgrounds now i'm a big soccer fan been a season ticket holder john's kind of a, a casual fan type and don't worry i've been working on him i'm trying to convert him but uh, you've been covering the team for a long time and and you've seen some pretty bleak stuff down in Chester. So the first thing I want to ask you about the union is what has it been like for you to cover them specifically as they've gone from MLS afterthought to actual real life trophy winners? It's been something I've thought a lot about this year, especially because um, for for me on the day to day, the bigger thing that I see is they've gone from a club that has talked a really good game to a club that now is living so many of those things. Right. And from the time that this club started, they talked about local talent. They talked about, you know, being intelligent in how they were going to bring in players. They talked about uh, really the, the founding idea of this club was in part all, look at all these guys that come from Philadelphia and are playing in MLS, are playing for the U.S. national team and all these other teams. What would happen if there was an MLS team from Philadelphia and all of those players could end up in the same place? That was kind of one of the central conceits of this team. And then they decided to go out for years and do absolutely none of that. They hired guys. <laughs> they hired guys who languished on the bench, or they they signed local guys who languished on the bench. It wasn't clear who was running things, how they were running it. Uh, you know, they went through two coaches in the first, uh, what, four plus seasons, and neither of those coaches really had a team that they could have won with. You know, there were some teams early on that nobody was winning with. And now what you see is the union are living up to those things. They're signing all these young players. They're investing in youth. They're creating a system in which these guys are able to play. So you see Brendan Aronson and Mark McKenzie and, you know, Matt Freeze and Matt Real and Anthony Fontana and all these guys, they're actually playing. They're actually contributing. They're actually having faith put in them. And, you know, when that happens and you put your faith in kids and in the right situations, they end up coming good. And that's that's what has been happening for the union. Um, I think there's a lot of other things the union have been doing a lot better, whether it's spending money wisely, not getting end of career guys and instead getting more mid-career guys, um, a lot more smart signings, a lot more involvement in the community, which is something that they said from the outset that they were going to do and didn't do for a great many years. Uh, so it's really, uh, to me, that's the bigger metric that I'm seeing is that the union now are closer to the union that they said they were going to be. Um, and I don't think it's any surprise that winning soccer has followed with that. Seems like there, there was a, a noticeable change to me when Ernie Stewart came in and Ernst Tanner has just taken it to the next level in the front office. But a lot of it to me and people wanted his job early on. But like you said, they really weren't putting teams on the field that could win. The development of Jim Curtin as a manager seems to have. Obviously, it's it's kind of been in concert with the team's rise. You get to see him on on a, on in a closer way, on a more frequent basis, working with the team like that and talking to him. This may sound like a dumb question, but how key is it? How key has he been to the development of this club into a legit contender? 
it's actually so in a perverse way that's actually worked to Jim's advantage because when Ernie Stewart came in, he came in at the end of the 2015 season. So five years ago, actually last month. Um, and Curtin had already been the manager for about 18 months and it had been a thoroughly unconvincing 18 months, to be honest. You know, they had their worst season in 2015. And in a lot of situations, uh, he would have been gone. The, you know, a new sporting director comes in brings in his own manager, brings in his own guy, and that's what happens. And what Ernie Stewart had the vision to do, uh, amongst many things that he did, was he said, listen, anything that happened before I came here doesn't really count, which was the tacit uh, kind of stamp that the union weren't <laughs> the union weren't really a professional club in a lot of ways before Ernie Stewart came around. And so Jim gets that reprieve, and as a result, he's able to grow. They bring in players that are actually – you know, of the quality to win in MLS. And then things start to change. The the thing that Ernie Stewart did is he set the club philosophies in a lot of different ways. And uh, I would say 95% of those exist to this day um, of this is what a union player is. This is what we want. This is what the club is looking for. Um, and then Ernst Tanner is able to come in and you know, add some flourishes to that. Obviously, Ernst, the one thing that Ernst has done more than than Ernie did is that Ernst has really hit on a lot of transfers. And you look at the number of young players that they've gone out and gotten uh, that are in this squad, guys like Casper Shiboko, Kai Wagner, Jacob Glesnes, Jamiro Montero. The, you know, the one knock against Ernie Stewart, great as he was, he didn't bring in a lot of guys that were really all that effective. Right. Um, so that's been a big part of it. And, and, and all that has allowed Jim Curtin to kind of grow into this role. Curtin is very much a guy who will say that uh, a manager is only as good as his players. And uh, I think he says that in good times as a little bit of, you know, a little bit of modesty, but it's also applicable in bad. The, you know, the, the, the flip side to that that's implicit is it's also applicable in bad times. And he's had squads that no one was going to win with. And he was able to, you know, take his lumps, learn his lessons. And now that he has a squad that a lot of coaches would win with, he's not just winning, not just being a team that gets them to the playoffs, but a team that gets them their first trophy. And now they're on the on the brink of being the number one seed in the, in the playoffs and seeing what they can do there. So the union have already won one trophy this season with the supporter shield, but they begin their quest for a second when they host New England on Tuesday night. Uh, it's the sixth time the two have met the season, uh, but the union have had a four wins and a draw so far. Um, it would seem the union are the better team, but how dangerous is New England? And I think it has to be strange to play someone six times in 27 games. Yeah, I was thinking about it today. And usually uh, in, in the before times when we had, you know, normalcy. Uh, it used to be that an MLS schedule, you'd play most of the teams twice and a couple times, a couple teams, three times. And whenever that happened, you'd always tee up curtain for the question of, so what does it take to beat a team three times or not lose to a team three times? I have no idea how many different options there are when you go up four, five, and six. Um, the union are the better team and a four Oh and one record, I think pretty clearly illustrates that. Um, but I mean, they're close games. It, it, it's a it's a one nothing game. It's two two one games. So by no means is it kind of a landslide. And I think Curtin will be reinforcing that a lot this week. Even the last game was a two nothing game where you know the Union had a lot of the pressure. Um, 
and two nothing was maybe a fair score, but it, it wasn't necessarily a blowout. Um, so it's definitely something that they're going to have to prepare for. The the one wrinkle in all of this is that uh, one of New England's best players, uh, Spanish midfielder Carlos Carlos Hill, uh, he missed the first four of the five games. He had an Achilles injury that kept him out for most of the year. Uh, and he's back now and he's up to speed. He really wasn't all that fit by the time they played uh, on decision day. Uh, and he's playing much better. He scored the first goal in their in their first round playoff win over Montreal. So he's a guy that can kind of change the game. And in that decision day win, the Union did a really good job neutralizing him with Jose Martinez, who's been outstanding this year. And that's going to be a big key to make sure he doesn't have that huge that huge impact. But uh, you know, the bright side, I guess, if we can say it's a bright side in a sixth meeting in a year is that the, the Revs are who the Revs are. They're, they're coached by Bruce Arena, former U.S. national team coach, times two, um, one of the best coaches in MLS history. He, he's not going to change anything going into this game. He's not going to change his system. He's not going to change his tactics. He's just going to, you know, I imagine his pep talk to his team is going to be, listen, these, this team has beaten you five times. He, that should make you angry. Go execute. And, and I think that might be as deep as the, the tactical talk is. And I think on the flip side, Jim Curtin's tactical talk will be, we've beaten this team four times, just go out and do what you know how to do, and it'll take care of itself. So it, it at least cuts down on the prep work for both of these coaches. There's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of video scouting that needs to be done for this. Yeah, the, uh, the return of, of Heel is the kind of thing that struck me as, even though this is the sixth meeting, it's really the first or second in that regard with regard to the squad that the revs will be putting out there on Tuesday night. Yeah. And, and, and he's such an influential player. I mean, he was the 2019, uh, 2019 MLS newcomer of the year. He's a guy who creates so much for other players and he sets the tone because he's able to really take, take possession of the ball just about anywhere on the field. And the way he's able to distribute um, especially with their wingers or when their outside backs kind of overlap forward, he's a really big piece. And they did a great job in that decision, decision day game of really nullifying him because every time he was on the ball, Jose Martinez was right up on him and you can't let him have, you can't let he'll have any space because he won't, he will make you pay, especially with the way Gustavo Bo kind of freelances through midfield. And you saw it with the goal that Bo scored to send them through when that starts to happen, they're, they're really dangerous. So I think that would be, uh, that at least provides some freshness to this in the matchup of the reminder of, Hey, I'm sure Jim Curtin is saying to his players, Hey, remember, we have to do this with heel. If we don't, if we're not uh, clinical about this, he can punish us. So then what would you say is the one thing they have to do to win this game? So I, I think this is a game that oddly, can boy and this is maybe a boring answer because uh, because the goals are important in soccer. Um, <laughs> but this is the kind of game where either one of the strikers, if if they're able, and we've seen it in the earlier playoff games this week, how absolutely nutty things get if there's an early goal. If either of the two strikers uh, ends up converting a half chance early in the game, 
then that dramatically changes the complexion of the game. Casper uh, Shibelko has been struggling a little bit for the union, just one goal in his last nine games. Uh, and he's the kind of guy that he he's still effective. He's had four assists in that time and he's still a big part of the union's offense. But if he can, he creates so many half chances that if he is able to take one of these, you know, minute little looks at goal and turn it into a goal like like he does when he's on then that completely changes the game and and the flip side is uh for new england adam books is their first year designated player he's got six goals this year he's had way more chances than that um and hasn't always been clinical in front of goal uh but he's one of those guys that you can see he has the ability in the kind of chances they create for him and that he creates for other players and you know if the union lose him on a set piece if uh you know they misjudge a cross cuz new england's going to cross the ball 20 to 40 times in this game if he can get a sliver of space and some kind of a fluky goal or you know just a just one where it comes off perfectly that completely completely changes the game cuz cuz then the revs are really hard to break down defensively especially if they have a lead as someone who's been invested in the club for a number of years i still find myself a little in awe of the fact that they're considered a favorite to win anything, let alone everything. But I said to John a couple of weeks ago that I think anything short of a conference finals appearance would be disappointing, kind of to serve as a validation of the season, considering the fact that they are the number one seed, they'll play every game at home where they're unbeaten. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, do you think that that's kind of how the club itself may look at things? Uh, I don't know. I think I think if they were to lose Tuesday night, it's going to be a one day disappointment. Like it's it's going to be disappointing. There's there's absolutely no question about it. Um, but I think it would have been more disappointing if they had lost. So if we if we kind of go back in time and try and do the opposite, if we're in a situation where the union come into decision day knowing they just need a win. Uh, and they can win the supporter's shield. If they had lost that game, they lose the supporter's shield and then say, go to the MLS Cup final, but don't win the tournament. Um, I think that's more disappointing than if than anything that follows now, having already won the supporter's shield. I think that right. first trophy, even though you know we can debate the merits of the supporter's shield versus MLS Cup, and it, certainly that's one of the things that soccer Twitter is for, but having that first thing to put in the trophy cabinet is really important. So I think if they were to lose to New England, absolutely, it's disappointing. And, you know, fans have the right to be disappointed in that performance. But at the same time, if you look back, I think the elation that came with winning the Supporters' Shield far outweighs that. And that's not something that's going to disappear if they lose to New England on, on Tuesday. Um so I think it would be nice for them to, I, I think a lot of fans are considering that, you know, it would be nice for them to go on a little bit of a run here. And I think there is an opportunity because I don't think any of these teams in the Eastern Conference are necessarily world beaters in the way that maybe you thought that LAFC was last year or that Atlanta in 2018 was. Like there is a sense of opportunity in the East where you can go to an MLS Cup final and, and because the Union of the Supporters Shield winners, that means having an MLS Cup final in Chester. That's a huge opportunity, and to miss out on that would be disappointing. Uh, but I think this club has already accomplished a lot this year, and, and I don't think there's anything they can do Tuesday that's going to necessarily wipe that away. That said, as somebody who 
has watched this team for a long time and felt pretty certain, uh, reasonably certain going into uh, decision day that they were going to lose to New England and end up blowing <laughs> the supporter shield. So maybe maybe that colors my view a little bit of it. But I think they've, you know, they've come up big in these kinds of situations before. Uh, the Toronto game, the trip to New England, this game, uh, the decision day game, uh, the game against Sporting Kansas City at the MLS's back tournament where they were a noted underdog. The, they've come up big in these one game performances before. So I, I think that's at least encouraging. He talked about the Eastern Conference roadmap. We won't we don't have the time to get into the craziness that was the shootout at the end of the Orlando City NYCFC match. But should the union get past New England? Orlando City is the next on the list. And then if they were to get through that, likely Toronto or Columbus. Is Orlando City a concerning matchup? Is that something difficult? They had a draw down on MLS's back. Could argue that the Union maybe should have had a penalty at the end of that match, but that's neither here nor there. Is that Was that the best outcome for them? Or would you have preferred NYCFC as a fan? Because I, as a fan, cannot remember a single Union NYCFC match where I thought that was a nice, fun match to watch. And that includes the like 8.30 a.m. game they played in MLS's back. I think they won. I think they won one not last year. There was like an early summer game against NYC that they won at Talon. Um, that wasn't bad. I feel like it was in July. Uh, I might be misremembering that. Um yeah, I, a lot of a lot of the matchup with Orlando City hinges on whether the red card for Pedro Galese stands, mm-hmm. um, and it being a uh, how to put this nicely a rather ludicrous red card, <laughs> a, a rather a rather ludicrous uh, remix of two yellows um, that may or may not stand, and he's he's one of the better goalies in the Western hemisphere, much less in MLS. Uh, he's the Peruvian national team's number one. So uh, if, if he's not there and it becomes the backup Brian Rowe, uh, I, I assume it's the backup Brian Rowe. They're not going to bring in uh, Rodolfo Schlegel again, their defender who stood in for penalties. I assume he's not going to be the guy. Um, then it's a very different game. But uh, just based on the way that the results were towards the end of the regular season, I think Orlando City struggled a little bit down the stretch and New York City FC did what New York City FC does every year, which is they surged late. Uh, I think NYC is the more talented team. And uh, I think they're a little bit more of a tactical nightmare um, to match up with than Orlando. Orlando's got a lot of talent, but I think what they do is a little bit more straightforward. You know, don't lose Daryl DK when he's running through the channel. Make sure that you get ball pressure to Nani if he's going to cross. Make sure someone has eyes on Chris uh, Chris Mueller at all times because he's really dangerous in the box. I think it's a little bit more straightforward against them. And I also think, uh, you know, defensively, they might be a little bit more vulnerable for the way that the union play. Uh, So I don't think that's that bad of a matchup. And then, you know, this is putting the cart before the horse, but I don't know when I'm going to be back on the podcast again. Uh, you know, Columbus and Toronto are, you know, both very good teams, but I don't necessarily know that either of them are uh, unbeatable. Certainly, I don't think Columbus is, uh, you know, the Union have two one goal losses at Columbus this year. Um, and Columbus, I think, is playing better because they're healthier, but I don't see the crew as being world beaters and, uh, you know, with Toronto, 
the five nothing game at at uh, and obviously Toronto has to win its first round game, uh, which I believe is uh, Tuesday at six o'clock. Um, so they have to get past Nashville, which is no easy feat because Nashville's playing very well. But you know Toronto, they had a two one game with them in Hartford, which I think is more representative than the five nothing game at at, uh, at Subaru Park. Right, so. Right. Um, They've proven they can play with them twice, both uh, uh, certainly routed a, a, a not very healthy Toronto team, but also played pretty closely to a, a fairly healthy Toronto team away from home. Now, do you get the sense that this is the window for the Union to win a title? Um, Joe seems to think so, but I'm curious for someone who like actually knows things, uh, <laughs> what they might think. Uh, it's interesting. I, I don't. I don't think uh, I think the way that they're building makes it so that the notion of the window is not necessarily as uh, as pertinent. Obviously, this is this is certainly the window for Brendan Aronson, and uh, it might very well be the window for Alejandro Bedoya, although I think he'll still be a valuable part at least next year. Um, But I think part of the way that they want to build is so that they don't have to be dependent on those kinds of windows. And we, we see it all the time in MLS, you know, uh, 80, 90% of the players you're going to bring into an MLS team when they're established pros from other places, they're not going to stay more than three years. So you try and get that alchemy just right to where they're, they're overlapping and you have that strength. Um, but I, I think there is a, a profound opportunity this year because LAFC is struggling out West because, um, because Atlanta is stuck in some kind of doldrums right now uh, when it looked like for the last two years they were going to win every MLS Cup forever. Um, I think Toronto's also getting a little bit older with Michael Bradley and uh, their defense that is not very mobile uh, and Josie Altador and his his hamburger meat hamstrings that are unfortunately <laughs> always injured. Uh, so there is a really big opportunity right now uh, but I don't think this is the only opportunity for the union. They're going to lose Aronson at the end of the year. They might well lose Mark McKenzie to a transfer to Europe in January. Um, but they're going to have $6 million to spend on replacements. They're going to have more kids coming up through the system. Uh, I think Jamiro Montero is still going to get better. I think Sergio Santos is still going to get better. I think Jose Martinez is still going to get better. Um and they still have plenty to build around and a lot of really good places to build with a lot of really good pieces to build with rather. Uh, so certainly this would be the strike while the iron's hot option, especially in a fall where, uh, you know, the Sixers are indifferent, the Flyers are quiet, the Phillies are a disaster and the Eagles are a double disaster. Um, (laughs) So there's definitely a really big opening to be the team from Philadelphia, uh, but I don't think it's a uh, I don't think it's a now or never kind of situation for the way that this club is building. In my defense, all right. First of all, I've I've grown up in this area. I've lived here long enough to know that good things are fleeting, but it, it has a lot to do with the Aaronson and McKenzie thing. You know, these are two bright young stars. Mark McKenzie's just an absolute beast as a center back. He's one of the most highly regarded players at his position in the league and still in some ways underappreciated. So that's really kind of where my sentiment comes from. But like you Uh said, there is a lot of money coming in for that transfer and Ernst Sander has more than earned the benefit of the doubt to see how he spends it. But that's kind of where the, the it's not quite doom and gloom, but the 
very, very cautious optimism comes from on my part. I've been here before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's it's totally valid that, uh, you know, I, th- I think the way that the union are selling it is that Aronson and McKenzie are not necessarily once in a generation players. And if you have a good club, they, they shouldn't be. And I don't necessarily think that they are once in a generation players because you see what, I mean, you see what Anthony Fontana has done this year and he's got more goals than Brendan Aronson. And obviously he plays in a different way and he's not as, he's not as I think all around influential as Aronson is. Um, So it will look different, but not necessarily better or worse. And I don't think there's a center back in the pipeline ready to replace McKenzie. Um, But you have someone like Matt Real, who's, I think, got the potential to be a very good starting uh, outside back in MLS for a lot of years. And you've got some really good, especially now, attacking talent. Uh, Jack DeVries is a really talented kid who doesn't really have a natural position in this system, but we'll see how that can kind of change. Um, You've got Brendan Aronson's younger brother coming up, Paxton. um, And there's a couple other really good attacking young talents that they signed just uh, just last week, I believe, uh, who will be in the mix for next year. So there's a lot of guys coming up through the system. And, the, and that's part of the, the design of the system is it doesn't have to be we're going to spend all our money on this big signing. And if he works, then awesome. But if he doesn't, then we're screwed for three years and break it all down and rebuild it which is kind of what the Galaxy are doing right now. And they finished last in the Western Conference uh, around, you know, they brought in Javier Hernandez, Mexican national teamer, who has been um, at best indifferent, at worst awful this year. Um, So they're trying, the way this system is built is specifically to get them off of that boom or bust cycle. Um, Not a lot of teams actually sustain that for multiple years and multiple uh, chances at a trophy. Toronto and Seattle have done it. Um, but I think that's what the union want to do is they, they hope they can be one of those kinds of teams. And the other wrinkle in all of this is now that you are effective in selling players, you are able to bring in more players. So, you know, uh, if for instance, next year, uh, say El Sino slows down a little bit and you need to bring in the next El Sino, you've got $6 million to go out and find that. So you don't have to do what you did with the first El Sino, which was, you know, wait for him while he was playing in Ukraine for uh, the, the war in Crimea to bomb his stadium so that they could get him on a free. You know, you don't, you don't have to worry about those kinds of situations anymore. You have actual real money to go spend and that helps. I know John was going to ask a question, but you kind of explained it for people who aren't big soccer people. The, the concept of selling your young players when they're very good is very foreign. And it's it's so like anathema to anything that we believe here in America. So I know John was going to ask about that, which kind of explained it away. <laughs> right. It's the idea of basically someone getting to AAA and then saying, OK, well, we're going to send them off to a completely another club now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting because I ha- I mean I had this conversation with my editor and it was a very long conversation about how uh, Brendan Aronson was going to be beloved by the union even if they sell him at the end of this year whether they you know whether they whether they won the supporter shield or not and that uh, that nobody in the club you know no fans would be sad about that because you're helping a kid make his dream come true of playing in Europe and it's a little bit of a difficult. Uh, it's a difficult idea to wrap your mind around in sports where there is just an American league. Like there, there's, or 
there is just an American lowercase league, not not the AL in baseball, but where, <laughs> where there is no where there is no foreign league to kind of you know where where everything in America is the top league, and there's nothing to go on to, and so you know financially it's important. I think um, the conversations are being had now about Kai Wagner, who apparently is the subject of interest from. Some English teams, according to whatever rumor mill rag is writing rumors about him. And that will be one of those things where if at the end of the year, um, you, you know, say a, a club in the English second division comes and says, we'll give you $2 million for this kid. Then, you know, if you're Ernst Tanner, who paid, you know, whatever, 200000 for him two years ago and got two really good years out of him, that's a no-brainer, tremendous business deal. Um, it's the same thing if a club in the German second division comes and says, we'll give you a, you know, whatever, a million dollars for Casper Shabilko, you will have gotten, uh, two years of great production out of him for free. And then you turn a profit. So it's a little bit of a, it is a little bit of a different concept. Um, but it also comes with the concept of this is an open market. So whereas with say the NFL, all the good players are taken you know, any player that's worth being on a team is theoretically on a team in the world of soccer. There's always another player. You have to find him and there's an opportunity cost to go find him. Um, but there's also an opportunity profit to be made. I don't know if that's an actual concept. I, I didn't study econ. <laughs> um, but there's also a profit to be made by having that next guy ready. So I, I'm sure as soon as Brendan Aronson you know, long before that deal was done, they had, you know, five guys who were lined up as if we don't want to go with Fontana and Paxton at the 10 next year, this is who we're going to bring in or or how to make that work. And it, it shows Jamiro Montero is actually a great example because they signed him on loan prior to the 2019 season. He had been on their radar for 18 months. He was on their radar when Ernie Stewart was here and when Jamiro was playing in the Netherlands. And he had a great season in the Netherlands, ends up signing a big deal for a French club, then doesn't end up playing there. So you're tracking him that entire time. And then when thing when there's an opportunity to go in and say, hey, we'll take this guy on loan for, for six months, then extend it to the end of the year, then sign him to a three-year contract with a transfer fee. You know, that's just the way that the business of soccer works. It's uh it's more it's more ephemeral than any other sport. No one's gonna no one's gonna spend 10 years with the union, unfortunately. Um Unless you're Ray Gaddis. Ray Gaddis is a special case. <laughs> Ray Gaddis from, you know, West Virginia FC is a, is a special case. But it's just the way that the business kind of works. And um, I think so much part of the transformation of the union is that for a lot of years, they didn't operate as though that's just the way the business works. They wanted to be in the American soccer kind of mindset of like, well, we're going to draft and we're going to do this. And then there's, you know, we're going to pick these guys. And if we can't sign them, we can't sign them. And, you know, they've kind of put on their big boy pants a little bit. And they're actually, they're legitimate players in the global soccer market. And that's how you become a good club in your league and globally. All right, Matt, look into your crystal ball. Do you think the union will win the MLS cup in three weeks? I do not. Do you have a, a favorite that that you see as most likely to do it? 
I'm just uh, the to the extent that there are any favorites, uh, I'm just hoping to be spared another Seattle Toronto final. Um, <laughs> I think Seattle has played the best soccer of anybody in the Western Conference. Um, I think uh, if uh, if Sebastian Blanco was healthy, I would say Portland would be a challenger there. I don't. You know, we saw it with Sporting Kansas City on Sunday that they have to go to penalty kicks against San Jose. I don't think Sporting Kansas City that they we can save this for when they inevitably win MLS Cup. I don't <laughs> think Sporting Kansas City is any good, really. At this, I mean, I think they're a good team, but not at this level. So there's nobody from the West that jumps out at me as like, hey, this is going to be great. It's it could be you know even LAFC. You look at and you're like, yeah, maybe they can make a run and finally put things together. They got to go to Seattle in the first round. Right. Um, so that might not happen. And then in the East, I mean, I I, I feel like the I, the Union definitely could win MLS Cup. They're good enough to do that. But, you know, they've got three games and every game in MLS is a complete and utter crapshoot. And nobody has any idea what's going to happen. And when you add the winner go home mentality, usually the thing that is weirder is somehow cosmically prioritized. <laughs> so I, I don't think uh, I don't think they're going to win MLS Cup. Um, just because I'm going to take the other 16, 15 teams in the field or however many are left as of the time of recording. Um, but at the same time, if they win, if, if on December 12th, I believe it is, we are freezing outside as they lift MLS Cup in Chester, um, I won't necessarily be surprised or I won't I won't be at a loss for words for how it happened, because the, the way that it can happen is it's there in the pieces that they put together. All right. The last thing you, you just talked about, the cosmically weird thing being prioritized. So here you go. I know this is near and dear to your heart, and I know you're supposed to be professional and impartial. But if and when Ray Gaddis scores the goal that wins MLS Cup, what kind of pandemonium will break out in the press box at Subaru Park? So there there have been as if anybody follows my tweets, you will know that. Um, so, I mean, first, the context. Ray, this isn't just some kind of flight of fancy. Ray Gaddis is third all time in MLS history for the most games played without a goal. He's got a very long way to go until he uh, passes the second one. I think he's at like 240-ish games, and I think the next one's like 295. So he's got a little while. He scored no goals in 78 games for uh, West Virginia. He scored actually one goal uh, in the summer USL um, uh, for Reading United. So he does have a goal since he... I don't know since whenever, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's just an absolutely loop. I mean, usually you get gold by accident. Like someone right. kicks a ball, off, like in that many minutes in however many 20,000 plus minutes he's played, you get a goal by accident. And he somehow hasn't. Um, when he scores, I have no idea. It has gotten to the point where it is kind of just a biological reflex I have no idea what will actually happen because it will be it, it will be like watching a unicorn with a flying pig on its back um, <laughs> jump over the moon. Like it, it will be that unprecedented. Um, I think it will happen eventually. I don't know how he's he's I mean, he's certainly improved his game over the years, especially his attacking game. Right. And at one and 
the way, uh, again, to hark into the SKC San Jose game, the way MLS credits uh, uh, goals means that as long as your shot is in the general, you know, zip code of the goal and it takes a wild, crazy deflection off of three guys and in, you get credited with the goal. Um, so it, it, it will happen. Uh, I just don't know what... Uh, I don't know what will happen afterwards is what's is what's the problem. My computer might just self-combust. We don't know. (laughs) That might be like the sign of the literal apocalypse. The ball goes in and then everything burns down. I mean, 2020 has been pretty crazy, um, but it hasn't been peak crazy yet because Ray (laughs) Gaddis hasn't scored. We've still got like five, six weeks left. <laughs> you know what? It, the, the thing of it is, is that it is going to be a big goal too. It's not going to right. be, it's not going to be the fifth goal in a six, one win or something like that. It's, and it's not going to be a crappy goal. It's not going to be like a tap in or anything. It's going to be one where he hits it from outside the box and you're just going to be left absolutely gobsmacked. And, you know, maybe he's going to score a 30 yard screamer to, to win MLS cup. Who the heck knows? Who knows? It's as likely as anything else is what I people think. I, people people will uh, people will die at that Subaru <laughs> part. I, I take no relish in saying that, but z- someone will die. I, I livestock might die. Women might spontaneously go into labor if that happens. I don't know what will happen. <sighs> well, as weird as it is to say, let's hope we get the chance to find out. Matt, we really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for calling in. Have a great Thanksgiving and good luck with your coverage the rest of the way. You too, guys. Thanks very much. You can find Matt's work in the Delaware County Daily Times. Be sure to head out to Wawa on Wednesday morning and grab a copy of the paper to read all about Tuesday's playoff game. He'll have great coverage of the union throughout the MLS Cup playoffs and beyond. You can also check him out on Twitter at SportsDoctorMD. And with that, John, I think it's time to pack it in for the week and uh, prepare for Thanksgiving. Yep. Looking forward to it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Be sure to download and subscribe. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for at Boobirds Podcast. And of course, our website, BoobirdsPodcast.com. Well, for quick picks, where we'll try to come up with something other than Russell Wilson being the offensive standout this week. <laughs> and of course, once again, our thanks to Matt DeGeorge of the Delco Daily Times. He's at Sports Doctor MD on Twitter. And as always, thank you for listening this week and every week. Please have a happy, safe, and most of all, healthy Thanksgiving. It's going to be a strange one, but please take care of each other and we'll talk to you next week. Happy Thanksgiving, Johnny. Happy Thanksgiving, Joe.